Hello and welcome. I'm Joe Matthews, California columnist and editor at Zocalo Public Square. Our mission at Zocalo is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. Find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org and on all the main podcast platforms. Uh, and if you enjoyed this conversation, please like it, follow us, or subscribe. We are proud to partner with the California Wellness Foundation to present uh, tonight's event titled, Can California Help America Reduce Gun Violence? Tonight's moderator is Lois Beckett, senior reporter for The Guardian. She covers gun violence, gun policy in America, and leads Guns and Lies in America, a series focusing on gun violence and prevention in Northern California. Over to you, Lois. Welcome everybody, it's so great to have you here today. I'm really pleased to be leading this discussion on how California can help prevent gun violence. Um, thank you so much to Zocalo Public Square and to California Wellness Foundation for hosting tonight's event. I'm really pleased to have three people um, joining us tonight who have thought and worked so deeply and so long on this issue. Um, we have Dr. Garen Wintemute, who is an emergency room physician and also the director of the Violence Prevention Research Program at the University of California, Davis. Uh, he is one of America's leading researchers on gun violence, author of many important studies. And I first uh, interviewed him many years ago um, for a story about uh, how he had donated more than $1 million of his own money to keep funding gun violence research um, when political pressure cut off some federal public funding for that work. So really living their ideals. Um, great to have Garen with us tonight. Um, Brian Malti is here from the Hope and Heal Foundation, which is dedicated to um, funding local gun violence prevention efforts across California. Um, Brian is now focused on the role of philanthropy in reducing gun violence uh, at the local and then of course the national level. Um, and he was previously at the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence, a 25 year veteran of the gun violence prevention movement. Um, finally, we have Philip Ting, a Democratic California Assembly member um, who uh, introduced uh, in 2020 an important expansion of the gun violence restraining order um, law, allowing more people um, to intervene when they're concerned that somebody might be at risk of harming themselves or others. Um, Assemblymember Ting represents San Francisco um, and was first elected in 2012. Um, thank you all so much for being here with us uh, tonight. Um, I will say um, that I'm very excited for this discussion. This is not going to be one of those gun violence discussions where we have like pro-gun and anti-gun people duking it out and reciting the same talking points. Um, I frankly have been part of a lot of those discussions and they are usually pretty boring because we all actually know what people say. Um, instead, we have three people who have um, know each other well, um, have at times collaborated, um, and are facing off not against some partisan battle, but against reality and the difficulties um, of actually doing the work and actually saving lives. Um, and that is challenging enough. I think uh, I have been uh, reporting on this beat for a long time. Um, and one thing that really stays with me is the Sandy Hook parent um, who said, you know, a lot of people think that our biggest en enemy is the National Rifle Association, and it absolutely is not. Uh, our biggest enemy is people's indifference and people's feeling of hopelessness, that there is nothing to do on this issue. And, you know, that was the big battle for her um, was to convince people that, that there are things that we can do um, and that it is not sort of a, a hopeless um, and futile effort. Um, and that cynicism, which is shared by many people, perhaps the majority of people, that's the real enemy. Um, so that's what we're gonna be talking about tonight. Um, so I'm really excited. Um, as you know, in part of these conversations, we are gonna be asking for audience questions. So feel free. Um, we really want, um, all of us really want to be meeting you where you are. And there are lots of different elements um, to this conversation. Just gun violence is not a, a simple issue. Um, and so we're gonna try to tackle as much of that tonight as we can. Um, so I'm actually gonna start with uh, Dr. Wintemute. Um, you know, obviously I think many of you have heard and seen some of the headlines and the news reports about crime being up. Um, and, you know, there is a very um, serious reality behind some of that, though there is often a lot of really misleading rhetoric and lies and propaganda about crime. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Garen, to, to talk a little bit about um, the research that you've been doing recently uh, on really trying to be really accurate and precise, like what happened in 2020 with murders and with gun violence in particular across the country, FBI data is not out yet. What do we 
know now about the situation last year and, and into this year. Good. Um, Lois, thanks. Excuse me. Let's get right into it. Um, I'm with you that there are grounds for optimism and planning, but the first step is to understand the situation where we are. So <clears throat> homicide went up by 25% in 2020 um, and by 30% in many major cities. That's a year over year increase that has never been seen in the hundred years of record keeping. And through June of this year, um, we are continuing, it's now a 16% increase, but still a rate of growth higher than all but a few of the years we've seen in the last century. It's item one. Let me juxtapose. Gun purchasing took off in January of 2020. People saw a pandemic coming. They got nervous. Gun buying picked up. It continued for many uh, reasons as the time since then has gone on. But the upshot is this, that through the end of July, there has been a continuing steady 60% excess rate of purchasing in of firearms, a, a surge in access to firearms, unlike anything we've ever seen. And it shows no sign of abating. Um, and I'll throw a, a, a third element in here. We, we've seen the anecdotes. There are some systematic data now to back it up. There is a level of acceptance of and support for political violence that we have not seen in modern history such that 70 to 80% of the population expects that we will see large scale political violence this year or next year. Very troubling indeed. Um, and I can certainly say as somebody who is out there covering some political protests in the streets of Los Angeles, um, there's a lot of violence out there. And um, I was attacked recently. A lot of journalists in Los Angeles have been attacked while covering protests on the streets, physically attacked. Um, so yeah, we're, that is a um, serious concern. Um, one thing I, I think that's really important to do is, you know, we talk a lot about year over year increases and these like statistics, but what does this mean in terms of like, you know, how many more people were killed last year than the year before? And what's the bigger perspective of like, is this the worst violence that America has ever seen or just wildly out of control? Like, how do you, you know, how do you explain that? Thank you for that. Rates of um, homicide were much higher in the mid 90s than they are now, um, the increases notwithstanding. Um, we're talking about, I, I do not mean to minimize, we're talking about a roughly a rough increase of about 3000 deaths per year. And I should emphasize that while homicide has gone up, other sorts of violent crime like robbery have either not increased or increased by much smaller amounts. And one of the puzzles that researchers will play with is why so much homicide and not other forms of violent crime. That's a really interesting and, and crucial point. I think a lot of times, like we talk, this is why we did like air quotes around crime is people are like, oh, crime is up, but actually um, violent crime isn't particularly up. Crime overall isn't particularly up. It is just murders. Um, and to some extent, um, shootings, aggravated assaults, although we don't have as clear data from them yet from the FBI, that those in particular are up. So that, you know, it, it's not that, you know, in some places like car thefts are also up, but like something is happening with murders that is different from everything else. And that's something that, you know, researchers who study this closely also emphasize like crime is just breaking a law and laws can change. We all know that. And so it's really important to talk about violence and to talk about murder because those are things that, you know, have such a more serious impact on people's lives. Um, and it, you know, it is, you know, in this moment where 10 people tend to be like, ah, oh, crime is up, like we need to control crime, to say like, uh, the picture is much more complicated. And, you know, as I've been working on this, I think it's, it's also really interesting to note there is California homicide data for 2020 is also out. And there were things in that that, um, that were surprising to me, um, intimate partner violence, um, domestic, fatal domestic violence didn't actually spike upwards in 2020 in California. We don't know yet about the national picture. I was totally shocked that fewer people killed their spouses in 2020 than in 2019 while we were all in lockdown. So there was this moment where I, I think that shocked me um, because I think we've thought that it would be much worse. I think a lot of people thought both, you know, researchers and journalists and like ordinary people, I could not believe that. Um, so I think that's, you know, one of those moments where what we assume to be true about what makes people violent or when people are dangerous, um, you know, isn't necessarily the case. You're nodding here, Darren. Is there something you wanted to add? I, I, just, I, I'm nodding in agreement. I, I, a year and a half ago at the start of the pandemic, 
we designed a study to what to follow trends in violence. And probably my, my single most confident prediction was that intimate partner violence would go up because there would be no escape from the violent household. And that has turned out with exceptions um, not to be true. Um, another confident prediction on my part and many others a year and a half ago was that the increase in gun purchasing that we were seeing and monitoring in real time would drive um, an increase in violence and we would see clear signals about that, more guns, more crime. And in the first months of the pandemic through May-ish, that was true. The bigger the increase in gun sales, the bigger the increase in violence that followed looking state by state across the country. But by summer, many other things were affecting rates of violence. And that has continued through to today. At least as of later last year, there wasn't a clear link between the size of the increase in gun purchasing and the size of a subsequent increase in violence. We're going to revisit that. Uh, we, we thought we'd do it when the pandemic was over, like mid-summer of this year. Um, that plan is on hold thanks to Delta. Um, but there will be a great deal of work done to understand what this pandemic and its consequences have meant for violence and why. I thought that study, again, was just totally shocking. And it was very interesting to me also, you know, in this moment where people are debating and wanting a simple answer to, you know, why is violence up? Why are murders up? And a lot of people, you know, you know, there are political reasons for people to say oh, it's about policing or it's about protests against policing. And there are political reasons that people wanted to say it's about guns. And it was quite striking to see um, your research sort of emerge in the middle of this narrative and say, well, actually, we looked quite closely state by state looking at comparisons between how many more guns and how much more violence and that there wasn't a connection. Um, also, that was very interesting because there are so, so often um, gun rights advocates really do not trust public health researchers who are certainly not a popular figure yourself with the National Rifle Association. Um, and yet, you know, I, as I'm talking always to people on all different sides of these issues, I, you know, try to say like, listen, a real scientist will report out what they find and really test the hypothesis, even if it, you know, if, even if it goes against what they think. Um, so, a you know, useful reminder. Um, and, you know, that is the level, you know, the trust, the, the, the test of a, a scientist or a journalist, like, do you really vigorously um, report or describe what you see even if it violates what um, might be uh, politically convenient to lots of people you know. Um, so noting that. Um, so this is a very important, and we're gonna come back to this increase because obviously something that it's um, a huge concern all across the country and will continue to be debated. We're expecting um, the FBI numbers to come out and confirm this roughly 25% increase in murders at the end of September. Um, and that will, you know, create a new round of national discussion, um, which may or may not have um, much input from the people who are most affected by this violence. Um, but I want to take a step back and, you know, say, you know, when we're talking about always these numbers and statistics and like, oh, this year was such a bad year, we want to take it in perspective of like the broader picture, because there's um, a lot of, uh, you know, political interest often in talking about increases in crime. Um, because crime statistics often can translate into money for particular people, particularly money for police departments. Um, and so there's a lot of interest from, you know, relatively well um, connected political people in talking about that. But there's also has been major decreases in gun violence um, and decreases in gun violence in California and the Bay Area in particular. Um, we looked, um, my colleague Albany Clayton, uh, Darwin Bond Graham and I did a big analysis and found a 30% increase roughly in the gun homicide rate from 2007 to 2017, um, a rate that declined most among uh, black residents of the Bay Area, even as the area we looked at, the black population stayed um, relatively the same. This was really an important um, and encouraging finding that um, fewer people were dying. And so I wanted to ask, you know, Brian, obviously this year has been really challenging. Can you talk a little bit about what happened, you know, in the years leading up to 2020, as some cities were seeing close to historic drops in gun violence? What do we know about that decline? Yeah, thank you, Lois. And again, great to be here. Um, as as Garen said, you know, there's more research that needs to be done on why uh, gun homicides are spiking here in California across the country. But there are two important factors before I get to kind of what led us here and some of the, the uh, 
accomplishments and achievements that have been going out through California in terms of interventions is that, I, you know, I, while we need to get more information, I'm really certain uh, as much as I possibly can be that there are two factors that have caused uh, gun homicides to go up. One is the underlying conditions that were existent before COVID in terms of marginalized communities have been uh, extremely exacerbated, right? The root causes of gun violence that we know, income inequality, blight, lots of things like that. But also to get to the point is that uh, interventionists, right? The interventionists that do community outreach on the streets, in hospitals, those with lived experiences, those are credible messengers to active shooters and folks caught in the cycle of violence were not able to do their work, right? Because back to your point about what happened pre-pandemic, right? Is we saw in cities like Oakland, Stockton, uh, Sacramento, Richmond, California with uh, effective and evaluated strategies like advanced peace and ceasefire. And we had sustained drops in gun homicides year after year. And why is that? Because these uh, mostly young men had folks reaching out to them on a daily basis. While a lot of us got through the pandemic with Zoom, like we're doing now, uh, Zoom meetings, conference calls, this work is not conducive, nor is it really super effective if it's done by Zoom. This is hourly to hourly, minute to minute, day to day contact, building trusted relationships with those young men uh, mostly young men, caught in the crossfire. And so now, again, as Garen mentioned, uh, Delta variant has thrown kind of a, a wrench into a lot of things, but we're starting to see interventionists get back to their work, right? And the more they can get back to their work in hospitals, on the street, uh, we'll start to see these rates uh, and gun homicides coming down to where they were. So I think it's really important to, to find, figure out where we were but what hasn't been able to happen over the last 18 or so months during COVID is really, really important. Gotcha, thank you so much. And we're gonna, I'm gonna come back to some of those, um, those themes that you're raising. Um, so assembly member Ting, you know, we're talking a little bit, one of the things I really like about this conversation, right, is, is the three of you here, we have a, a researcher, we have, you know, someone who represents the money and we have you focused on policy writing uh, legislation. Can you talk like confronting this moment, um, what do you see as the priorities for the political fights that are most worth having? Obviously there are so many different um, things going on. There is a challenge to California's assault weapon ban. There's an increasing concern about ghost guns, um, you know, lots of legislative fights, although not the same as in every state. Obviously California has much stricter gun control laws than many states. Where are you focusing your political energies? What fights do you think are, are the most important ones? Well, thanks, Lois. Thanks, thanks for that great question and really appreciate being on this panel. I wanted to go back to your first question because you talked about crime statistics, and I think it's really important to put them into historic context. I mean, you talk about year-over-year -year jumps. Um, if you look at the Public Policy Institute of California, they do some great analysis uh, they have a crime report going back, looking at violent crimes and property crimes going from 1960. And I think it's really important uh, to put things in historic context. So you had uh, property crimes really peaking uh, in the 19, uh, kind of like around late 1970s, 1980, and you had violent crime uh, peaking in about 1990. Uh, both of those crimes relative to when they started really looking and measuring those uh, data are at historic lows today. So if you ask the public based on what they're seeing on the news, what they see on social media, what how they're feeling, uh, they probably feel that crime is at an all-time high. I mean, I, I'm constantly hearing that, whereas it's actually at an all-time low. So I think it is really important to uh, put the data into a historic context because it's it's when you look at things that one year over year, when you're measuring year over year and things start at a low, obviously any little bump uh, really creates a certain level of fear. So there's there's a lot of as as you talked about sort of the politics of fear. And the media really drives that um, in large part because uh, when they um, when they 
talk about news. Uh, crime is obviously a, a very good news story. The evening news, probably about a third of that segment really focused on crime and various crimes all around uh, your local area. So I think that if you talk to people, there is a, a very you know, large amount of fear going on. Uh, you know, some of it for, for good reason, as Dr. Wintermute talked about, you know, gun sales are way up. Uh, there is uh, more acceptance of violence at what should be peaceful protest. Uh, we are seeing a significant amount of animosity and tension, um, whether it's on social media, whether it's uh, because of COVID, a variety of, uh, there's a significant amount of anger, this greater polarization politically, the polar uh, the politics right now are moving outward. So it's moving further and further left on my side, further and further right on the other side. And it creates a very difficult time to legislate as well as to meet in the middle. Uh, and you're seeing that from both Democratic and Republican legislators where they spend most of their time playing to the far left base or the far right base. So in terms of gun violence, the, the nice, the, the, the silver lining in that politically is it has become much easier to get gun legislation through the state legislature. So you would think when the legislature had historic highs, I came in in 2012, uh, we elected that year 55 out of 80 Democrats, you know, almost an all time high. We now have 60 Democrats, uh, which is actually more Democrats than during the Watergate era. So you would think, boy, um, you know, doing gun day, doing any gun legislation in 2012 uh, would have been a no-brainer. Um, I worked on expanding our gun violence restraining order uh, three different times. Twice got to Governor Brown's desk, they both got vetoed. Finally got to Governor Newsom's desk, the bill got signed. Uh, and now we saw that horrible shooting in San Jose where a, uh, a, a disgruntled uh, VTA worker went and uh, went to his workplace and shot a number of people. Uh, and that's exactly the kind of um, shooting we were trying to prevent where we empowered people who are employers, employees, uh, co-workers, as well as people who you go to school with. So we had that horrible Parkland shooting, that horrible Sandy Hook shooting. So if you go to school, you're a teacher, you're a principal, you could actually um, do something and, and go to a court and try to get a gun violence restraining order. And so, um, you know, it's, it's so important that we really allow tools for regular people to work with law enforcement to get guns out of the hands of the wrong people. The NRA talks about it. It's really interesting. When I was doing my legislation, uh, ironically, we, we had the Brady campaign as the main as one of the main sponsors. We had the ACLU and the NRA opposed. Uh, it was just this fascinating alliance of, um, you know, a group that really fights for civil liberties and a group that fights for gun rights, uh, absolutely opposed, uh, even though the NRA always talks about getting guns out of the hands of the wrong people. I, I think another key point, which I'm sure you're probably going to hit on later, is I was proud to work with Senator Walk to really lead the effort to fund Dr. Wintermute's research center. So what, one of the main problems why we have so little data on gun violence is the, the Republican Party, the NRA, they've done a great job at forbidding NIH, CDC from doing any research, any research. So why is it we know so little? It's because we, we don't have any research. And so our UC Davis Institute's only been around for a few years. Um, and just the, the few reports they have have been illuminating. They talk about how gun violence restraining orders save lives. They, they talk about how much of the policy we're pushing in California saves lives. Uh, that's why in this year's budget, we, we again funded more um, education from our San Diego City Attorney, Mara Elliott. She's done an amazing job talking and educating to law enforcement how they can use gun violence restraining orders in their communities. Uh, we uh, gave more money to local law enforcement to go after um, go after guns that really are on the list. We have this list in the Attorney General's office of people who shouldn't have guns, and the list just keeps, seems to keep growing and growing, and we just have a hard time getting those guns off the streets. And so we really wanted to have local law enforcement join our Attorney General office. So it, the the silver lining is there that we 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 know certain people who shouldn't have guns. Um, we have finally some leadership in law enforcement, some leadership at the local city level to really go after this. Gun, gun violence restraining orders, uh, the San Diego City Attorney is responsible for, I think, about a third. Her office is singularly responsible for about a third of the gun violence restraining orders being issued in the entire state. So it just shows if you actually provide leadership, 
you are proactive, you can do incredible, incredible work, which is why the state is supporting her office to do more education for law enforcement, how to use this amazing tool. Thank you so much. That's bringing out so many things of this that are so important. And one of them is just to follow up on, on what you're talking about, San Diego, is this reality that you can pass a law that is specifically designed to give members of the public a tool to react when they're worried about someone and their behavior. And, you know, there's a, just a, a couple of things for those in the audience who aren't familiar and don't spend a lot of time thinking about this kind of policy, right? Like we have a very permissive um, regime of who gets to have a gun in the United States. Uh, and the, the bar for you know saying that someone can no longer legally own a gun to like remove that right is very high. And one of the things that is difficult about that bar also is that it doesn't actually line up with people's risk of dangerousness um, because the law is written sort of like if you're a felon or if you've been voluntarily committed, um, sort of very like had a very serious and documented mental health crisis that's already been sort of encoded in a, in by the state then you might be added to the list of people who are no longer allowed to buy a gun. But actually research shows that people can be dangerous and be at least at highest risk of actually hurting themselves or other people long before they're actually at the point where that's gonna be documented. And so that's what is, um, you know, why so many people got so excited about gun violence restraining orders is that rather than being lined up with sort of like this, you know, what's written on the books as opposed to one someone's more dangerous, it's trying to, be in that middle ground and recognize that someone can be very dangerous and that like the state and the government don't know when someone is dangerous until it's already too late. And the people who do know often are coworkers or people at the school. And it comes from the research that every time after someone commits a mass shooting, then you put together the pieces of all the red flags and all the, you know, the tips and the people who didn't talk to each other. And so it's trying to exist in that space. And also, again, one thing that's really important about this policy is that it's temporary and that there is a, different states have different laws, but you have a chance to contest it, but it's removing your guns temporarily while you're like while you're at the highest risk of danger, and then maybe getting them back if you're no longer in a place due to a personal crisis or a mental health crisis um, where you know you aren't at at risk anymore. Um, so Garen, can you talk a little bit more? Cause I think you have studied, um, you know, studied these San, this uh, San Diego work because, you know, this law passed was very exciting. California was the front runner. And then according to the data, people just didn't use the law. Uh, I will. Um, and I'll actually pick up where assembly member um, Ting left off um, in uh, describing our center. And thanks again to assembly member Ting for his support. Here's what happened just recently. Um, the center spent some of that taxpayer money to look at the question, why are gun violence restraining orders not being used more than they are? What's the problem? We did a survey of Californians and what we discovered was that very few people knew that this, this option even existed. There's a website, there have been efforts, but nonetheless, the fact on the ground was only a small minority of Californians even knew that this, the gun violence restraining orders existed. So in the survey, we said, well, tell you what, here's what it is and here's how it works. What do you think? Is that a good idea? And 70 to 80% of people, gun owners included, said, yeah, that's a great idea. And when we then asked them, okay, so here's some hypothetical scenarios. A, a family member is distraught and threatening to kill themselves, something like that. Would you yourself be willing to go to a judge or go to law enforcement and cause a gun violence restraining order to be issued to me. <clears throat> and 75% of people, gun owners included, said, yes, I would do that. So after the, the horrific mass shooting in San Jose, we got inquiries from the legislature and from the governor's office. This has been a tragedy. What new law do we need? And I was able to say, thanks to your support, just last week, we published a study showing we don't so much need more law. We need to know, we need for people to know what law exists and how to do it. And in this year's budget, as, as Assembly Member Ting mentioned, there is now a, a, a substantial amount of new money for the city of San Diego um, and for statewide education efforts. This is, it's a clear example, if I can step back a little bit, it's a clear example of a far-sighted legislature saying, we have a big problem. We need the evidence if we're gonna understand this problem correctly and we'll pay for it. So they paid for it and we went out and got the evidence and when they needed it, it was there. 
That's how it's supposed to work. Occasionally there are examples of things working and things building on each other and helping make people safe. So always really good to, to remember that. And to remember that like one of the frustrating things about the gun debate is it is so heated and so dramatic and often like really playing on trauma. But one of the things that comes to get through so clearly after you study or report on this is that like the things that save people's lives are logistics, right? They are often, it's like, it is the per, it's the intervention that's showing up at the right time when someone is stressed out and at the end of their rope and really afraid that someone else is going to shoot them. And like being calm and like being like trusted and having an actual relationship. And, and just some things as simple as like getting high risk people out of town at a crucial moment. like that makes so much difference. And it's, you know, there's a lot of things like, let's fight to pass a law, but if people don't know the law exists or don't get trained in the law, then it doesn't. And Lois, that, that, that's why it's, it's, it's so important. Um, I want people to get to a website, uh, www.speakforsafety.org. Dr. Wintermute knows it well. This is a great resource for regular people who want to know, how do I utilize a gun violence restraining order? Obviously, before we ask people to really approach people with firearms, it's best to really always engage law enforcement. But what we've seen in numerous examples, often law enforcement is, is reluctant to take people's guns away. We, we saw that in the shooting in Tehama uh, up north. Uh, we saw that in the shooting in Thousand Oaks where you had the individual before they went to borderline actually was identified by social services, was actually visited by the sheriff, but they didn't take the person's guns away. Um, and then they go and, and kill, uh, you know, I think it was 20, 20 people at a bar in Thousand Oaks. So again, um, it goes back to if you see something, say something, uh, really encouraging you, you have tools, you don't have to do this by yourself. There are tools where you don't have to necessarily just put your, you know, we don't want you to put your life at risk, but there are tools now where you can uh, take some action responsibly. Lois, can I, do you mind, can I chime in on that too? Um, so Hope and Heal Fund a couple of years ago uh, funded uh some efforts to for to implement the gun violence restraining order law. You know, Garen, you spoke at it as in conjunction with our partners at Giffords, and we had one in Southern California, Northern California. And I think one of the things that we uh, all need to look at is in terms of not even just gun violence restraining orders, but all laws, uh, is make sure that they're done in a racially equitable manner. That the, a law isn't misused. Um, primarily sometimes by law enforcement as a, another form of suppression. And so I think one of the areas we're looking at in terms of what our role is in implementing is how do we make sure this stays a tool for family members? And, 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 and I know Garen would agree on this too, is one of the most promising things about gun violence restraining orders is the ability to affect uh, or decrease firearm suicide. So I think there's a lot wrapped up in there and uh, we look forward to making sure that things are done in a very equitable manner and make sure that the gun violence restraining order is done in a way that was meant to be done. Thank you so much, Brent. And yes, always important. Um, you know, I think there's more awareness now of this than there used to be, but you know, two thirds of gun deaths in the United States every year typically are gun suicides. And so the person most likely to be killed with a gun is someone who is white, someone who is male, often someone who's living in a more rural place, um, maybe a more conservative place. Um, and um, it's just a tremendous, tremendous toll. Um, and I think we're still, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Karen, but I think we're still waiting to understand the full toll of suicide during the pandemic. Um, we have, yeah, I, sorry to cut you off. We, we have surveillance system, city data portals, for example, which provide near real-time data on, on interpersonal violence that are being mined for the sorts of reports that I mentioned earlier. We simply don't have anything like that for suicide. And the data lag, is, the time from the event to its appearance in the data is more than a year. Um, and in the, in the near term, there's no way around that. Um, there's, we, we simply are gonna have to wait to know. And Brian, I wanna to return to something that you were saying, which you know, is this question of um, what does it mean to protect people and save people's lives um, without actually harming people more with the sort of goal of gun violence prevention tactic. Can you speak a little bit more broadly? I think in the gun violence prevention um, world of, of advocacy groups, I think there's been a real reckoning over the years about which interventions do actually end up 
sometimes harming Black families and Black Americans in particular, um, and, and what it means to, you know, ask for laws and ask for interventions that don't have harms and don't sort of rebound and create different kinds of violence and harm um, in the attempt to stop shootings. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and um, it, from my policy work uh, for many years at Brady, um, one thing was very clear is that um, for the most part, historically, and I know things are changing, that uh, the gun violence prevention movement um, in terms of legislation was a very white and still to some degree is a white led movement. Um, those uh, in terms of gun policy at the federal and state level, a lot of black and brown communities, indigenous communities have been left out of input. Um, and so I think one of the most important things and we're starting to see some really great changes is making sure that uh, those most impacted by gun violence, whether it's gun owners and veterans on suicide, uh, whether it's black and brown communities on homicide and so forth, um, that they have a seat at the table. And one of the things that we, uh, for our grant making purposes at Hope and Heal Fund, is we demand collaboration from communities up front. We don't uh, design an RFP internally and send it out and intentionally, unintentionally have community based organizations compete against each other. We ask for collaboration up front. We help expose communities up and down the state to strategies, some of which we've already talked about, uh, intervention, prevention, and aftercare, so that they have an idea of what's out there. Then they decide what sorts of solutions they want to pursue. So it's really putting back the car keys in the hands of the community and letting them, letting them decide and, and having us help them leverage the solutions they want to pursue. I think, Brian, that is such an important point because a lot of times when I am out interviewing people who do on the ground violence prevention work, violence interventionists, or people in communities of color who are dealing with this issue every day, um, you know, there's a lot of cynicism about the nonprofit world or the nonprofit industrial complex because people see that there's a lot of money that comes in at the top, but it doesn't necessarily make it to the ground or make it to a place where they're seeing it. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that people from a community are being employed to help address the problems of the community. Um, and also, you know, the money comes one year and it's gone the next year. And so someone's there and saying they're going to help you and saying they're going to be there for you and then they're gone. And so, you know, a lot of times the people um, who are at highest risk of shooting or being shot are also people who have been failed for their entire lives by systems that are like, oh, we're here to help you. Like we want to be helpful and then don't actually deliver on those promises. Um, so I think it's really um, useful to help you to hear how you and your organization are sort of grappling with that and thinking about like, what does it mean to come in with money and um, in a productive way and not in a like, ah, I'm here to save the day, but I'm like, what does it mean to like, you know, can I yeah, for a second? So, um, you know, one thing I've learned as a policy person, um, a, a politics person, and now a philanthropist is that there's never, philanthropy never is going to have enough money to solve this issue or any issue. What we can do is we can seed organizations who work on this issue. We can seed pilot projects. We can innovate. We can show proof of concept. But ultimately, and as we're seeing, not only locally across California, statewide across California, but now even federally, is public dollars. Public dollars need to be invested in community-based organizations working on effective strategies. As we've seen from city to city, the cost of doing nothing is extraordinary. Um, some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, cost of gun violence reports we've seen from San Bernardino and Stockton is that one single gun homicide can cost a city anywhere from a million to two and a half million, and just an injury can cost upwards of a million dollars. So the cost of doing nothing is a lot. And the peace dividend you get from small investments, and again, th there are some really wonderful investments on the state and local level, and now hopefully federally, but that, that smaller amount of money produces a peace dividend and cuts down on violence. And so we are big advocates of philanthropy, starting the, starting the fire, uh, if you will, uh, but having the public dollars come in uh, because that's how we're really gonna move the needle. Well, and that, that's why it's so important. Um, oftentimes philanthropies, they're like angel investors. They get, they get the ball rolling uh, and get the groups going, but it really is uh, the sustainability happens when government decides to make it a core piece of funding, just like with the UC Davis Research Center. Um, you know, if it wasn't for government, it, you know, it wouldn't 
it wouldn't, this research wouldn't happen. And so we know that we had to make that investment. We made a historic investment in many uh, community groups with a $200 million investment this year toward the CalBIT program, which is all the very, a variety of nonprofits who really have been very focused on reducing gun violence. That's a historic investment up from, I think it was 21, 21 million the previous uh, budget or two budgets ago. Um, and so we, we realized if, it, if we, need to step up, it's really our job to make sure that that money is sustainable and that we make that core investment in our communities. Um, but it really goes back to you know, all the data. Without, without any of that data, uh, what you have is a, a strategy on the other side where they have an isolated incident. They really nitpick about this individual person. They focus on uh, if there was any particular mental health they try to uh, divert the attention away from the actual guns to the issue of mental health. And again, you know, if, if a person has a particular uh, mental health issue and has a knife versus an automatic rifle, well, there, there's, there's, there's a very big difference in the amount of damage they can do in a few minutes. And that's, that's really how fast uh, we see the reaction time. I mean, law enforcement is usually on the scene in the matter of minutes. Their, their ability to get to someplace quickly is really pretty incredible. And we see oftentimes with these mass shootings, uh, it's because they have militarized weaponry, which we've really been working uh, very hard to ban off our streets. And they have been banned off our streets, but every, every time we pass a law, it's kind of like whack-a-mole. The, the gun industry will do some modifications so that they can um, modify something and keep these guns uh, in, in people's hands. And it's really for the life of me, I can't understand why, why we still um, can't seem to get help from Congress to really get uh, militarized weapons off the streets of our country. That is an issue that a lot of people feel very passionately about. Um, Karen, can you speak to, you know, obviously, you know, military style weapons have been a flashpoint for decades um, in this debate over gun violence. Um, they are used in relatively few of overall homicides. I think the last time I ran the stats, it was something like um, in, the, in the ballpark of 3% of, of those we, the type of weapon we know. What does the data show us that we have so far about how effective bans on assault weapons have been or could be? I will parse this out and be brief in the doing. Um, you know that a long answer is uh, appropriate here. Um, here's the issue. 30 years ago, a farsighted legislature here in California reacted to a mass shooting at a schoolyard in Stockton and banned assault type rifles. And we've had iterations of that ban as Assemblymember Ting uh, mentioned ever since. The ban was imitated, I was going to say replicated at the federal level in effect for 10 years and then allowed to sunset. And the question comes up all the time, what did it do? Here's the key. In California, and not all that much later at the federal level, the bans were enacted while assault weapons were very uncommonly used in crime. The effort was to prevent a crisis from manifesting itself among us. But the evaluations were focused on, so how much did, did crime go down? How much did various kinds of shootings in particular go down because these bans were put in place? And the fundamental problem is, it's hard to show a decrease in the frequency of an event that is rare to begin with. And we're stuck. I will say this. Assault type rifles are tools. They were originally designed for the military and the purpose was to put a lot of lead down range to use the metaphor in a hurry, to substitute rate of fire for marksmanship. They continue to serve that purpose. For that reason, they are overrepresented in mass killings. California has a ban. Um, we have a low mass shooting rate. Um, we, I, I think it's still true that we have the most, but we're also by far the biggest state. And if you look at the state with the rate, per capita rate of mass shootings, uh, I'm sorry, with the number of mass shootings that's second to California, that's Florida, and its rate is more than twice as high. Um, in fact, if I can generalize beyond assault weapons, 
over the past 30 or 40 years, we've put a bunch of laws in place because we saw a crisis coming. Not because it was there and we could make it go away. We wanted to prevent it. Perfect, that's smart policymaking. Um, we've talked about this, I'm gonna show a graph. Pretend that that's a graph, everybody. Here's 1990, it's probably, oh, it's actually not backwards from your point of view. Um, here's 1990. This is California's firearm violence rate. This is the rest of the country. We were the same back in 1990. We've been going down. The rest of the country has been going up. Our group and lots of other people have tried to tease out, was that the assault weapons ban? Hard to say, I just mentioned. Was that implementing comprehensive background checks, requiring a background check on, on every purchase of firearms? Hard to say. We've decided to, uh, we're launching this work literally this month. We're going to evaluate the bundle of laws that California enacted and answer the question, is there something about the bundle as a group of policies enacted at very close to the same time that has driven rates of violence down in California while they've gone up in the rest of the country? To the extent that the line for the country over that period of time is actually flat, but it's California down, everybody else up. I'm gonna to move to audience questions. Um because there's a lot more to say on that, but we have a little, only a little bit of time. Um, so one question then, and this is the kind of question I often hear, um, if there wasn't a second amendment, second amendment didn't exist, what kind of gun control um, could, would be politically possible in California? Um, or another way of phrasing this question is, how important is the existence of the second amendment to the kind of laws um, that are can be passed uh, right now? Um, Assemblymember Ting, do you have any quick thoughts on that? I think it has a huge impact because uh, there's a very big difference between a right and a privilege. Um, what we see is in every other industrialized country, uh, well, in some countries, you're not allowed to own a gun. So you, you have many countries where it's not possible to own a gun. Uh, you know, other, in other industrialized countries, what you see is it's a privilege. So you have to do hours of training. You have to get a license. You have to prove that you will be responsible. If, if you join the military before you are allowed to handle a weapon, you have to take hours of training to understand how to use a weapon, how to clean the weapon, how to safely store the weapon. Um, and what you see is in this country, you don't have any of that. We, we don't, we rarely uh, have, uh, are allowed to do any kind of training. Uh, it's very difficult for us. I, I looked at a bill when I first started to require that uh, if you own a firearm, you get insurance. Uh, you can't drive a car off the lot unless you can have proof of insurance, but yet you can go buy guns, which again, guns are designed to kill people. This is not, um, you know, they're being used for exactly what they're supposed to be used for, which is to kill it, to kill human beings. So again, um, you know, it is a very different mindset when you have something is a is a right versus something is a privilege. And that really does hamper our ability to really put some responsibility on the gun owner. Uh, at this point, uh, we assume that every gun owner knows what they're doing. Every gun owner know, is totally responsible. And that's not what we assume if someone's driving a car. That's not what we assume uh, for, for, many, for many other things. These are all privileges that you have to demonstrate. You have to get, go educate yourself and understand that in order to drive this vehicle down the road, uh, which could potentially harm other people, uh, you have to take training. You have to go get a license. You have to go get insurance. And so it, it, is, it, is a big, uh, it is a big difference. I'm not a constitutional lawyer in terms of all the different constitutional impacts. Maybe Brian and, and uh, Garen can talk about it. But, but again, from a legislative point of view, it definitely does impact what we can do. One other question from the audience, I think connects interestingly here. Um, is the number of people who own guns in California, has that been trending down over time? Uh, has it gone down given the increase in gun buying last year? Uh, Garen, what do we know about that? So <clears throat> I, I wanna uh, correct a common misunderstanding about what we know about gun ownership in California. There is no registry of people who own guns. Um, nobody can go and say, let's find all the current gun owners in California and track the, exactly the trend that you're talking about, Lois. What we do have is an archive of purchases. That's as close as we get. Um, 
but separately, what uh, last year our group um, in that same survey that I made reference to earlier um, asked people, do you own a gun? Um, and did you buy one recently? Did you buy one in the course of the pandemic? Um, and I'll overgeneralize a little bit. Um, the rate, the prevalence of gun ownership in California had, had been trending downward. Um, it ticked up again as it has across the country with the pandemic. Uh, uh, somewhere in the order of 20% of the people who bought guns beginning early last year were new gun owners. Um, and, and I'm gonna expand very briefly on the scope of the, pro uh, the question. This concerns me a lot, uh, not just as a researcher, but as a clinician. These are households that, if you will, have gone from zero to one on the question, is there a gun in your home? Um, and one of the things that we know is that in the near term, acquiring a gun, purchasing a gun and bringing it into the home increases the risk of suicide for the owner by a factor of 100, 100 times greater, 10,000% greater. Um, we're in the process of studying what it means for the rest of the household. But my sense to go back uh, to your question about suicide is that we will probably see when the data are available an increase in suicide, if only because a lot more households than previously have guns at home. And I think that's such an important point to, to bring into this conversation is just this reminder that, you know, people lot, talk a lot about laws and the constitution, but it's also really important to understand how many American citizens sort of are making the choice that a gun is a useful tool in their life. And what we saw in this past year is that especially in a, like a, in a world of, of fear and uncertainty, um, people do think that, you know, that guns and toilet paper both sold out. And like those, you know, when things are tough, what do you really need in your house? Um, so can, can I piggyback briefly? Um, Cause this is that particular phenomenon is something I've been studying and writing about. Um, one of the things we're learning is that the demographics of the population of people who buy guns um, are changing. And people who would have said a couple of years ago, never in my life will I buy a gun are, are buying them. There's been some reporting, some, some really, um, uh, difficult anecdotes. Um, I, I'll give an example. A woman at a gun store saying, this goes everything against everything I believe in, everything I was brought up, brought up to believe in, but I'm buying a gun. And I think one of the things in the, your research that was really striking was the number of people who said that their gun purchase was related to a concern about society breaking down, a mistrust of the government, and a lot of people saying that they were concerned that sort of prisoners being released for COVID-related reasons was going to drive an increase in gun violence. Um, and you know, one thing just to say in some of the analysis we did in the Bay Area is that rates of incarceration went down dramatically at the same time that gun homicides were dropping dramatically, that there was yeah. not in fact a correlation. That's, exactly. That's another myth. Um, and we, we just need to keep track of, we know it's a myth, but a lot of other people don't. And belief in the myth is driving their behavior and the consequences of that behavior, like the increase in gun purchasing are real. Right. And so for some reason, people feel feel less safe, like, like you mentioned, Lois. And what's interesting, what, one of the tools legislatively that has been effective is ensuring that guns are safely stored. So that was one of the bills I did when I got to the legislature in 2013 to make sure that guns were safely stored especially around children. And what we see is uh, people talked about children bringing guns to school, people misusing guns. You know, children, if, if you give children access to certain things, whether it's a tool, a power tool or anything, of course, children are going to misuse it. That's what children do. That's why, that's why they're children. And, and so to think that you can leave a gun lying around in front of children or uh, children who bring other children over to your home and not having anything catastrophic happen is actually very foolhardy. Uh, what, what, what you should assume is that something should happen and you just got lucky that nothing did happen because you left this gun lying around. So actually making sure that there is a safe storage, which is again, an intermediate step um, to make sure that you, you prevent some of these um, sort of shootings that really shouldn't have happened. Uh, that, that's, been, that's been nationwide, at least a tool that has been more palatable for, for many people. Lois, can I quick, quickly just jump in really fast? Um, uh, 
and uh, to Darren's study and some other studies that we also see uh, people of color uh, being first time buyers and just not to let it go that um, in California, of course, as we all know that the state population is 40% Latino. Um, through our just thumbnails uh, research and trying to find safe storage information in Spanish, let alone other Asian languages is very hard to come by. So if there's been an uptick in first time gun buyers and many people who don't speak English as their first language, we have a lot of work to do um, really fast uh, to make sure that information is um, available um, to different populations in terms of safe storage. Thanks, Brian. And Brian, there's actually another audience question for you, um, which is from someone who says that she's quite enthusiastic about your idea that more public dollars, so state and federal dollars, um, should be focused on community-based violence prevention. Just say it very quickly, like, you know, if you're a person and you're like, I, this seems like a good idea, what should I be advocating? Like, where should state dollars go? Where should federal dollars go to something that, that would be effective? What would you tell them? Yeah, I mean, we, we do have different buckets at the state level and certain cities like Oakland and Los Angeles have uh, passed ordinances uh, for tax dollars to go to community-based organizations working on these interventions. Wherever you live, if you're in a city, um, uh, it is really important to make your voice heard that and find out how, how much of the budget in the city is going uh, to these community-based organizations that are doing effective and evaluated strategies. Um, because it's really important that those folks get dollars. We work with a lot of community partners up and down the state who don't even have no, enough money to pay themselves or pay their outreach workers. They're doing it all volunteer. This needs to be professionalized. This needs to be a career path. Um, so it's not only just getting the interventions off the ground. It's making sure that people have a living wage when they're doing this kind of work. And yeah, I think that's so important. And one of those um, studies that I saw that there stories that I saw recently was this idea of using Medicare dollars to pay for hospital-based violence intervention programs. So again, taking this thing that was sort of tested with private philanthropy dollars and saying, actually, this is something that should just be standard practice in hospitals, particularly because we know that so many people get post-traumatic stress because of community gun violence, um, which goes untreated and, and can be very, uh, you know, very devastating for individuals and for families. Um, so we have just a couple more minutes here. Um, so we're gonna do a fast uh, one-two lightning round. I'm gonna ask you guys to keep it quite short. Um, but I, for each of you, um, and I'll start with Garen, for people who are listening, who are like, I am really concerned about gun violence. Like what are one or two things that I as an individual person could do that would be helpful or that would push forward? What's the advice that you would give? One or two things sort of in the area that you've looked at that you think individual people can make a difference? One thing, um, contact your state assembly member and senator and say exactly what you just said. Um, that I'm concerned, I wanna help, I want you assembly member or senator to help. Um, actually, I'll make it thing two. Um, there are regional violence prevention offices. Um, I, if I recall correctly, Brian's um, organization has a list of them, get that list. Um, people need to work locally using the resources that they have, using their knowledge and skill. Um, letters to us, members of the legislature matter. I will say that. Assemblymember King, one or two things that you think ordinary residents can do that are that are helpful. Yeah, I, I would add to, to Garen's point where um, while you doing it individually does matter, does help, it's much more important that you do what Brian said, which is you work with an organization or you build an organization. So it really outlives that one contact with the legislature. Um, I've, I, could, I could tell you which colleagues of mine are, are very much in our camp and really think this is an issue. I have a number of colleagues who, who really, uh, who are again, Democrats who are very much uh, pro-gun owners. They're, they're, they're very much in favor of uh, gun owners and also concerned about limiting any form of gun ownership or any kind of gun control. So um, it is very important that as a community, communities get organized so that this is not seen as, oh, this is a San Francisco issue or a Berkeley issue or a West, uh, you know, a Westwood, Santa Monica issue. This is something that is, you know, prevalent and important in Vallejo. It's important in Sacramento. It's important in Fresno. It's important in Modesto. Uh, and that's really what we need to see. We need to see 
this become much more mainstream. And what I think does give me hope is that in many suburban communities, this has become a much bigger issue. Uh, it's become a much bigger issue in Orinda, in Huntington Beach, in Newport Beach, where you see um, uh, the politics there are a little more conservative, but on this issue, they're very progressive. So I think it is important that we you know, have a broad coalition uh, Brian talked about ensuring that we have people of color, communities of color really involved. You know, my, my community, the API community, I don't think we're big gun owners, but we're also not big uh, gun control activists either. So it is important that you bring other communities into the fold that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't naturally, uh, you don't naturally go to, but it is important to really do a lot of community education and really grassroots work. And, and that is meeting those communities where they are. It's not saying, hey, how come you don't come, come to our meetings? How come you don't work with us? It's you have to go to those communities and really uh, be able to communicate and organize in those communities on their terms. Uh, Brian mentioned Latino communities, African-American communities. You see quite often uh, while they are victims of gun violence, they're rarely at the table with many of these groups. Brian, one or one or two things you did. Yeah, I know we're, we're running close on time, so I'll make it quick. Uh, uh, as uh, Garen mentioned, uh, uh, www.hopeandhealfund.org, there's a resource page that lists by parts of where you live in California, different groups, an ever-growing list of groups on the ground. Please support them. There are a lot of folks I talk to who advocate on gun violence prevention, but don't know what's going on maybe a few blocks or a couple miles away in their own city. So it's really, really important. The other thing I would say too is, while there's been a lot of focus and resources to uh, like four big cities, Sacramento, San Francisco, Oakland, and LA, and they need more, um, that accounts for about one in every four gun homicides. The other three of four gun homicides are scattered throughout the state. As uh, Assemblymember Ting said, they're in Vallejo, they're in uh, Palmdale and Lancaster, they're in Lompoc. Uh, there are all these different communities. So don't think your community is too small, right? Actually, that sometimes can be an advantage, but make your voice heard, check out our resource page, and please support these groups doing great work on the ground. Thank you so much, Brian. And can you just say a little bit more, what do we know about what the challenge of gun violence looks in smaller cities, which again, as you're saying, represent three of four of homicides overall. Um, is it similar to what it looks like in bigger cities? Uh, is, the, is the mix of different in terms yeah. of problems? Yeah, the, the, uh, in a lot of these cities, in fact, I would even point out like cities like San Diego, which if you look at the entire city of San Diego, it's one of the safest cities, not only in California, the country, but violence is concentrated in certain neighborhoods and certain blocks. And so it's really important to drill down, even if you live in San Diego saying, hey, well, you know, we live in the safest city, nothing to do. That's different if you live in Southeast San Diego or Barrio Logan. Um, these are the th kind of things that we need to really drill down on because it's really important. Um, I would also just say really quickly that um, it's also important that we focus on where firearm suicides are happening. Um, where are those areas? Because there are many non-legislative ways to tackle firearm suicide and definitely starts with credible messengers um, and focusing on populations like veterans and other gun owners. So there's a lot of work to do, but the data part and figuring out where the impacted communities are, be it domestic violence, suicide, or community violence is really, really important. Well, thank you all so much for this. And I'll just say it's sort of you know, drawing on, on what all three of you said, one of the things that's been really striking as a journalist interviewing people who get involved in this issue over time is that one of the most important things is just to show up with other people in, and begin to talk with other people who are interested in this. And why that's so important is that in particularly in talking to um, white women who get involved in this issue. A lot of time, and, and that often happens after a school shooting, um, I've heard repeatedly that their understanding of, of what the problem of gun violence is and what it means and what it takes to fix it changes a lot from showing up um, and you know meeting other people and, and sort of not understanding this issue as the consumer of media, but as a person in a pretty small community where you actually um, can have a pretty large influence. And I think just you know emphasizing again something that 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 Brian said is that this is not like gun violence is not sort of this national issue where it's the same everywhere, right? It's very particular and it's often very concentrated. And it's also something where there are people who have been working on this issue for decades, often not having their voices heard or getting a lot of attention. Um, so, you know, I have seen, you know, on one hand, like sometimes activists reinventing the wheel or thinking they're coming in, you know, 
to it sort of save this issue and actually is sort of taking a step back and saying, who's already doing this work? And can I meet them? And can I hear from them what they need um, is tremendously powerful. And doing that you know, in person is again, tremendously, or you know, in a small Zoom can be tremendously um, powerful. And you know, again, returning to something that Assemblymember Ching said that was so important is you know, uh, that there has been so much work by some communities of color, Black and Latino, uh, in particular on this issue, um, but that there are really just a diverse coalition, many different communities who are impacted by this in different ways. We saw that I think particularly in the national reaction to the um, spa shootings um, outside of Atlanta, sort of new efforts to really be supportive and collaborative and have different communities and different you know, uh, racial groups um, really talking about the different ways that gun violence um, affects them and the different what safety means in this country at this particular moment. Um, so there's so much more that we could say, um, but I really appreciate all three of you for your thoughtfulness in sharing tonight. Um, and so for some of these um, great audience questions, and hopefully for those of you who are listening, um, this is the beginning of your uh, engagement uh, and not the end. So um, thank you again um, to Zocalo and to the California Wellness Foundation um, for uh, supporting this discussion. Um, I think that's probably about it for tonight. Thank you. Thank you.